Science, science, science. Everything is beautiful. These are the opening lines from The Venus Hottentot, a poem by Black poet Elizabeth Alexander, which puts into conversation a scientist and his so-called object of study, the South African Xhosa woman, Satya Bhatman. I'm Stephanie Schaefer, and I'd like to welcome you to Lady Fiction, dedicated to reading women. Today's episode, episode four, turns to science and therefore offers a new take on our module reading women. We will look at patriarchal practices of reading, so to speak, exploiting and dissecting black women's bodies for scientific purposes. And we will explore poetic reformulations of those women's voices in the present moment. Poetry and history intersect and we were reminded of this very recently with the performance of Amanda Gorman at President Biden's inauguration in January 2021. Gorman is the nation's youngest inaugural poet. And in an interview with Michelle Obama, she talks about the Black Renaissance in art and she talks about poetry. And here's what she has to say. Poetry is the lens we use to interrogate the history we stand on and the future we stand for. So I'm super excited to have a guest here who will explore the subject of poetry, black women's bodies, pasts and futures and histories with me. Dr. Christine Vogt-William from the University of Bayreuth. Christine is a widely published scholar of South Asian and African diasporic and mixed race literatures and post-colonial women's literature. And I'd like to recommend to all our listeners her monograph, Bridges, Borders and Bodies, Transgressive Transculturality in Contemporary South Asian Diasporic Women's Novels, published with Cambridge Scholars in 2014. Christine was an interim professor for postcolonial and gender studies at Humboldt University Berlin and is currently director of gender and diversity of the gender and diversity office at the University of Bayreuth. And it is so great to have you here. So hi, Christine. Hello, it's my pleasure to be with you here tonight, Stephanie. This is an adventure indeed. It is, it's specifically since we all have very long hair. So this is Absolutely. long hair women talking in the pandemic lockdown. But I'd like to begin talking with you about the opening lines of Elizabeth Alexander's poem that you read to us at the beginning. But I have to squeeze in a trigger warning uh, to our listeners. The poems we will discuss concern body matters and medical procedures, and we will explore the language used for negotiating the hurt done to black people. We want to, listeners uh, to know about this, but we also think that it's key to it's the key to poetry's potential to move people with Amanda Gorman to kind of interrogate, quote, the history that we stand on, unquote. So. This is it, enough talking from me. Christine, can you walk us through the beginning of Elizabeth Alexander's poem, The Venus Hottentot, and uh, about this quote that you brought us, is science beautiful? Well, I think 
we need to consider how these poems can actually be aesthetic sites where critical thinking has to take place. We, we talk about voices in these poems, and I think what's important here is that these voices set up by these African-American women poets who we want to sort of uh, look at tonight, these voices are those belonging to subjects which have been silenced, right? And silenced at particular historical moments, silenced through violences imposed on them, all in the name of science. And we want to ask ourselves, what exactly is this science being used for, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And why was it necessary that certain voices had to be silenced by these particular violent impositions in order to produce knowledge of which, uh, to all intents and purposes, were meant to benefit people in general, right? Okay, so, so we, we might want to also keep this one question in the back of our minds. What exactly is science being used for, right? Okay, and here we, we've got an interesting approach to science seen as, you know, in the sense of biological science, medicine, where we, we, we always have these particular ideas of knowledge production in these mm. particular scientific fields, uh, which are supposed to be some sort of uh, beneficial or benevolent uh, type yeah. of shaping of human life. And yet when we go back to the historicity of these, of these particular um, quests for knowledge, right, we see that violence on human beings has been perpetrated. And what's interesting is that these are historical figures who were never thought of being actual historical personages yes. with anything yeah. worth uh, saying, right? Okay, so, so it's interesting here how we see uh, Elizabeth Alexander, Marilyn Nelson, and Bettina Judd commemorating enslaved women who had been exploited by medical professionals and scientists. Right. And what's interesting here is that these particular poems are uh, are actually voiced from perspectives which, as it were, can be thought to be coming from beyond the grave. Yeah, They've been imagined yeah. as speaking across the eons, as speaking across historical eras to us right now, yeah, in order to counter the violent historical moves where intended silencing is complicit in the exercise of knowledge production, right? Okay. We, we need to talk a little bit about um, the historical figures that were never meant to be historical figures. I really like the way that you put this. So, so Elizabeth Ander, uh, Alexander's poem, The Venus Hottentot, is a poem about the historic person, Satya Bartman, a South African woman, woman who came to London and then went on to Paris at the turn of the 18th century. So this is the, um, the 1790s that she arrives. And she passed away in Paris in 1815. She was made to be a curiosity to uh, the London society. Um, she was exposed and ex exhibited in freak shows and circuses. And even after her passing, she became uh, a subject or an object of, of scrutiny 
by Napoleon Bonaparte's chief anatomist, Cuvier. So Cuvier is the one who starts speaking in the Venus Hottentot. He's the one who says science, science, science. Everything is beautiful. Um, we hear him speaking as he presumably picks apart Satya Bhatman's body. So the poem is basically about the Venus Hottentot. That's what she was called and the, the afterlife that she might have. And, and I, when I was researching this, uh, I found an article by Juliana Yanacaro from the University of Milan, who examines, quote, discursive practices in Satya Bhatman's literary afterlives. And she has a list of all the texts about Satya Bhatman. So, and she basically says that Bhatman became a transnational icon of that exploitation that happened to black women's bodies that were never supposed to even have a name. So today, when we go to the doctor, we don't think that any kind of medical care or cure is built on experiments. And we, we dwell on this so much, specifically in times of a pandemic. We rely on lots of testing of vaccines uh, that is tested on, uh, on animals and on humans. And those people who, uh, you know, list uh, list themselves for the testing. Of course, they, they have different rights, but Satya Bhatman and the other historical figures that we will talk about today had no rights. They had no uh, claim to anything. So this is also, as you said, a quest for knowledge that uh, allows us to kind of find out about the historical cases. So for those of you listeners who don't know this, Satya Bhatman is the woman that um, this poem is about. She was supposed, she was called the Venus Hottentot and she was exoticized, eroticized. And she, in the poem, she tries to be an entrepreneur. So we have two sections in the poem that put, uh, that establish a fictional dialogue between the examiner and the examined, the scientist and his object of study. And that's what I find absolutely amazing. So we start out with Cuvier saying, science, 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 everything is beautiful. Few will ever see what I see through this microscope. And then in the second part, we get Satya's own voice. What do you make of her own voice? Yeah, if I could just take backtrack yeah. a little bit to Cuvier again, picking up from where you, you left off, right? Few will ever see what I see through this microscope. So we have this idea that, that everything that he looks at is uh, put under the microscope. The guy doesn't necessarily uh, look at this woman as a person, right? And then you see interesting ways of how he, he fragments her, right? Okay, her genitals will float inside a labeled pickling jar in the Musée de l'Homme on a shelf above Broca's brain, the Venus Hottentot. And he ends up with elegant facts await me. Small things in this world are mine. Right? Okay, we've got this, this white uh, uh, scientist person here who can only relate to his object of investigation, not as a subject with a mind, a heart, a life, a story, a history. No, mm -hmm. this person is objectified and this person is rendered small enough, fragmented enough to come under his microscope because small things in this world are his. We notice there is this exertion of ownership. But what's interesting immediately after that is that we find Satya in this lyrical eye, 
where she talks back and she exists outside of time in this poem's title. She's called The Venus Hottentot 1825. Now, this is 10 years after Sarah's death and dissection. Yes. Okay, so this gives us the impression that it's her ghost who is released from her body, released from linear understandings of time. The ghost appears moored tied to the spaces that she has inhabited in yes. her life and that yeah. particular space right now where she's uh, having this altercation with uh, Cuvier but she also floats free from such moorings right and can I just jump in here the floating of course yeah. is what is fascinating to me because I'm not sure she's a ghost she's floating disembodiedly and I, I have to say this that her her genitalia were displayed in the Musée de l'Homme in Paris for almost 200 years yeah. Yeah. and she was only buried at the beginning of the 2000s yeah she was buried in 2002 187 years later 187 years later how long her body was just put on display we never knew so viewers would never know who this person was so so it's not even i'm not sure it's ghostly it's disembodied it's free floating it's a hauntology i don't know what to call it but there's a wonderful concoction of that physical fluidity yes absolutely what would you call I, it i would definitely call sarah's speaking here a mode of hauntology yeah where she's building up a hauntological relationality with Cuvier through this poem. And this is how Alexander wants to set the stage. I mean, she, and the fact that she, she also adds in 1825, which then also speaks to us here in the 21st century, where a voice has been imagined for this dismembered woman, a voice that none of us had ever reckoned we would ever hear. And what's mm. interesting here is that she has these uh, this self-assertive way of describing herself. As you pointed out earlier, she sees herself as a, as the family entrepreneur. Yes. Now, this is, this is an, quite an audacious... Yes. Uh, position to be claiming for somebody who is seen as property small things in this world are mine right as a woman who perhaps not necessarily immediately thought of as being part of chattel slavery but still was definitely in the purview of chattel slavery with regard to how her body was treated uh, in extractivist and exploitative ways just for the sake of a white man's pursuit of knowledge and in that pursuit of knowledge, we find Cuvier reifying how the black female body has to be understood as a hypersexualized entity. Yeah, where any mode of personhood, subjectivity, history, story, voice, memory, relationships, yeah, anything of those uh, images or, or ideas of personhood, they are being disavowed. And yet mm. we see this woman uh, seeing herself as an entrepreneur who has basically made this decision, as the history books have it, uh, made this decision to go along and allow herself to be objectified with this one idea at the back of her mind that she, uh, she will be earning some kind of money, remittance, in order to help her 
family advance their fortunes. This is what we she see. even she even imagines herself to become a kind of a duchess. Um, Absolutely. So she she says, "I left Cape Town with a promise of revenue, half the profits in my passage home, a boon." Yeah. Um, so she was master's brother proposed the trip the magistrate granted me leave so it's not like she can go wherever she wants to she she does have to seek permission but then she says i would return to my family a duchess with watered silk dresses and money to grow food rouge and powders and glass pots silver scissors a lorgnette wool and tulle instead of flax cerulean blue instead of indigo so it really becomes an adornment of body that she imagines and um, a social upward mobility that she imagines that will come from her entrepreneurship, from her mobility to the center of the empire and from her exposing herself and making the money. So the Elizabeth Alexander gives the Venus Hutton taught really an entrepreneurial character that where she seeks to adorn her female body in female ways. It's not like she wants to own a large estate. She says, I want to have rouge and powders in glass pots, silver scissors. So she wants to to wear, you know, beautiful clothes. <laughs> and yeah, uh, well, that's, I think, very relatable also. It's a, it's a gendered luxury that is proposed indeed, here. Indeed, it is a gendered luxury that is being imagined by a black woman who has obviously heard of such luxuries being accorded to white women. And if you see, there are interesting products here that, you, you know, you would have basically imagined see, seeing on the dressing table of white women as well so yes. we see here not necessarily just an upward class mobility thing here going on here here we would also need to see how intersectionality also works yes absolutely how a black woman imagines herself and imagines certain futures for herself that that actually go beyond the types of discourses dictate uh, that that dictate what black people could have at that particular yes. time and place actually have imagined for themselves and and i see also an interesting sort of allusion here to uh, the, the the chattel slavery economy also in the USA. Because you talk about cerulean blue instead of indigo, and if you look at the indigo industry in in the US, especially in the South, where you know uh, slaves were used, enslaved peoples were used to harvest indigo, so that basically this particular dye could be then used to dye clothing, uh, which again comes out as material luxury goods yes but again, and I, I, we should say also that luxury blue was an absolute luxury color it was oh, the absolutely. hardest color to produce absolutely. and uh, it would it was in france it was the color reserved for the king Absolutely. So and, it has a classist it, implication. It, it, it has definitely class evocations mm. here. But what we see here, what Alexander has basically shown us here with this particular voice of Satki Bartman, is that this is a black woman who dares to dream and dares to imagine this. Yeah. Okay. So we have somebody who's breaking boundaries here. This we have somebody here who's not willing to just quietly and patiently and uh, just just sit around and do mm. uh, what is expected of her. And interestingly enough, while she imagines her business, uh, or rather imagines her returning her, uh, to uh, her family as a duchess, a couple of stanzas down, we see her actually also ruminating on a particular engraving called the ball of the Duchess du Barry. 
Yeah? Yes. And in the engraving, she says, I lurch towards the beldam, mad-eyed, and they swoon. Men in capes and pinsnez shield them. Tassels dance at my hips. In this newspaper lithograph, my buttocks are shown, swollen and luminous as a planet. Again, mm -hmm. we have her basically as either, uh, you know, a, a, a hauntological entity or a ghost, however you wish to <clears throat> address this. She literally sees herself being exoticized. Tassels dance at my hips. In the engraving, I lurch mad-eyed and they swoon. She literally sees herself imposing her body in, as they read it in racialized and gendered frames. This exoticized, eroticized, but yet at the same time monsterized body as well. And we see how her body again is being fragmented. I mean, it's not, on the one hand she has, she lurches, it is her mad eyes, but on the other hand, you've got the spotlight more or less tra trained on her buttocks, which is yes. what, of course, uh, her buttocks as well as her genitalia, which Cuvier was extremely invested in. Yes, yeah, and immediately yeah. after this, we see how she observes, cynically observes, Monsieur Cuvier investigates between my legs, poking, prodding, sure of his hypothesis. He complains at my scent and does not think I comprehend, but I speak English, I speak Dutch, I speak a little French as well, and languages Monsieur Cuvier will, nev will never know have names, but I am bitter now, right? Okay, mm -hmm. so we, we have somebody here who is literally sort of watching Cuvier, his gaze trained on her. But in the, interestingly enough, she inverts this gaze as well. And the next stanzas basically bring us to what she sees in this audacious, rebellious, resisting gaze. Now, we, we, there's much to be said about the privileging of the white gaze when it comes to knowledge production practices. And yeah. this is also something that we still interrogate today, especially in the, in the frameworks of decolonial scholarship. But here we see Satya Bartman literally decolonizing her own body from this mm -hmm. gaze by inverting this gaze. And she goes mm. in and she says, my flexible tongue and healthy mouth bewildered this man with his rotting teeth. If he were to let me rise up from this table, I'd spirit his knives and cut out his black heart, seal it with science fluid inside, a bell jar, place it on a low shelf in a white man's museum so the world could see it was shriveled and hard, geometric, deformed, unnatural. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And that's the ending of the poem. And I just love it. Thank you for for performing it for us. That's what she does. That's what's what the end what the poem ends with. It doesn't end with Satya's genitalia put on the shelf. It ends with her rising up, cutting the guy's heart out, you know, the ultimate act of retribution, and then displaying to the world that he has no heart. So while while her humanity is being questioned or she's not granted human status in the scientific setup, the poem empowers her by um, having her cut his heart out and show and reveal him to be unhuman. And that's what I just love about the poem. So it's it's 
it's decolonization and turning the tables at the same time and saying science, as we understand it today, with its presumed objectivity, with its hard facts, is not only built on so many sacrifices that we don't know of, it's also built on an inhuman scientist persona. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's then, what she as it says in the end. Yeah, and, and, and th th there is something to be said about this inversion of that gaze and this meditation mm. of possible violation of the scientist's body in, in return for the kinds of mutilation that that scientist has perpetrated on this b female body. Mm. herself right okay mm. absolutely mm. discounting disavowing her personhood and mm. uh, interestingly enough also not even allowing her to rest in death not even according her the dignity of that citizenship right after a life of work we have to also realize this while sarah bartman talks about entrepreneurship she is doing work she is she is literally doing labor yeah and this is something that those scientific minds and white privileged scientific gazers of that time were not aware of yes they did not see the black woman's body doing the labor that was needed yeah and under which conditions that labor was being carried out yeah there was no recompense there was no, no. recompense no, exactly. It was it was uh, gratuitous labor, and uh, they were subjected to gratuitous violence. So maybe this is also a good point to lead over to the second case study, so to speak, of poetic invention or reinvention of a of a victim of science, maybe, uh, namely Marilyn Nelson's Fortune's Bones. So this is the case here: the person who speaks to us from beyond the grave or above the grave or through a weird embodied, disembodied poetic voice is Fortune, who was a slave in Massachusetts to a doctor, Persevere Porter, and who also became a study object of science. Maybe you can walk us a little bit through, through Fortune's case and then we talk about Marilyn Nelson's poetic vision in fortune's bones published in 2004 yes absolutely this is um another heartbreaking case really of another enslaved body a man this time a father a husband um and uh, he died at the age of 60. Uh, some accounts they say causes unknown, other accounts that he had uh, an accident and fell into the r river uh, uh, near his home and so on and so forth. Uh, suffice it to say he died but was not allowed to rest in death. Again, another basic citizenship right being able to rest in the long final I don't know, journey to your next life, if you so believe, right? And this person was enslaved during the 18th century. Uh, his master, Dr. Preserved Porter, was an orthopedist. Uh, he was also a teacher. He was also uh, somebody who trained other young medical practitioners. And uh, what was interesting is that he seemed to 
have a I don't know some sort of weird attachment to um, yes uh, to fortune himself so much so he had to have his skeleton extracted from the dead body by boiling mm. off the flesh uh, again trigger warning this is highly upsetting right okay um, and and he kept that skeleton in his office in his home and this man had other enslaved people working for him among mm -hmm. them amongst them fortune's wife dinah who was a house slave now one can only imagine what this woman must have felt like to clean around her husband's own uh, remains right uh, so so it's it's something that's that's quite traumatizing i mean f fortune it is to be hoped his spirit had gone off to something b better we will hear, hear a little bit more about that later about but the to, spirit part yeah. yeah yeah but to to actually have your your you know your husband's skeleton in the house in the space that you have to work in and it here i i have to just you know say a little bit about what we find in this poem cycle diner's lament where a black woman's voice is heard again grieving for her loved one she says miss lydia doesn't clean the doctor room she says she can't go in that room she's scared she make me take the dust rag and the broom and clean around my husband hanging there since she's seen fortune head in that big pot, Miss Lydia say that room make her feel ill. Sick with the thought of boiling human broth, I wonder how she think it make me feel. To dust the hands what used to stroke my breast, to dust the arms what hold me when I cried, to dust where his soft lips were and his chest, what curved its warm against my back at night. Through every season, sun up to starlight, I heft, scrub, knead, one black woman alone, except for my children. The world so white, nobody know my pain, but fortune bones. Now, we have here this black woman speaking, yearning for her husband. And perhaps we could take that that the particular poem here, Dinah's Lament, and, and just use it as, as a kind of a framing to look at the title picture of the book itself, where we have Marilyn Nelson's Fortune's Bones. We have the skeleton and we have an imagery which was put together by some sort of computer t technology where you might actually imagine how Fortune might have looked like. And we just basically get to have this this skeleton juxtaposed onto this image of this man as he was imagined in his humanity, right? But what we have here through Dinah's lament, we have this woman still imagining her husband in fleshly intimacy. This was a man she knew very intimately she shared her hopes and dreams with shared her fears with she had children with this man it was important to say at this time uh, they lived in uh, circumstances which were atypical for the enslaved fortune his wife dinah and their children were actually given a home of their own close to preserved porter's own estate right so here interestingly enough despite this um, uh, uh, interesting, sh shall we say, I don't know, an allowance of your own free home space. Interestingly enough, 
fortune is not buried. He's not, uh, uh, his family are not allowed to take part in a, a going away ceremony, a leave-taking ceremony. They, are not, they have not been able to pray or to sing. They have not able, been able to bury their dead according to their own customs. No. Instead, these, these skeletal remains are removed, repossessed, as it were, right? The skeletal remains are thou put into the doctor's office to serve his own purposes. So service has not ended with death. He has not been accorded the dignity of the long eternal rest. Instead, instead, what's interesting here is that we, on page 17, we get Dr. Preserved Porter's ruminations on a rather interesting mode of intimacy that he embarks on with this particular skeleton. Maybe before, before we dive into this dialogue, again, we have a dialogue between those two figures that is imagined in the poetry. Maybe before we delve into that, I can say a few words about um, the project of the Manumission Requiem. Or um, So Marilyn Nelson's book is called uh, Fortune's Bones, The Manumission Requiem, and it's a commissioned work of art. So the question here is also, how do we deal with this past that we stand on and what? how do we imagine a future that we stand for, to go back to Amanda Gorman's works. So this um, manumission requiem is commissioned art and it's the, um, it's the result of interdisciplinary uh, research. So at the site, at the Metatuck Museum, there was a team of anthropologists, archaeologists and historians working with the museum staff that gave the poet insight into Fortune's life and that did this digital reconstruction of what he might have looked like that you talked about and that that is the, the cover image. So we see how the digital uh, image looks like today, what he might have looked like and th shining through we see the bones. And the question here again is, and this is something that Nelson in um, the preface doesn't answer or to, in the author's notes, so uh, she says there was debate about burying him, burying the skeleton. And uh, lots of people were in favor saying, let him rest. You know, we've had enough uh, art producing scientific uh, study around him. This has been, let's grant him what you call his citizen right and have a burial as they did with the remains of Sachi Batman. But then uh, she also says there were people who say, maybe he has other things to tell us and maybe we should preserve the skeleton here to not only teach human anatomy, but as a, as a memento to inquire about who has the right to bury whom, what does burial mean? And what do we do with these bodies when we, when we meet them? So the poem, goes beyond the bodies. And this is where I'm trying to seek back to uh, what you were talking about. So we have uh, Preserved Porter talking to us how he uh, dissects the body in the poems. And then we also have another section that's called Not My Bones, that is Fortune's Voice. And maybe we can, we can speak about those two parts a little bit. So Preserved Porter on Abrigador Hill talks about what it's like for him to take his former possessions or the person he worked with for so many years apart. Yeah, um, 
I would say that Preserved Porter basically was still acting in uh, the the accepted uh, um, slave-owning fashion that he still did not see Fortune as a person who had rights, who even after his death was still pressed into service, literally. Yeah, and in order to be able to be pressed into post-humous service, posthumous service here, uh, he had to have his flesh boiled off, right? Yeah. But what's interesting in Obrigador Hill is that we, even before the business of the flesh being boiled off, we have Preserved Porter doing a type of autopsy yeah. of of fortune himself before fortune is reduced to bones right to the skeleton and pressed into service anew but what's interesting about this is that and here we it's interesting to see how our black women poets here are trying to accord some sort of uh, some some glimmer of humanity in these scientists with the hope, there's a certain hope behind this exercise, this glimmer of humanity in the voices of these scientists, where there is the hope that they still might come to some sort of recognition of, of the v violence of, the, of, of their pursuits of knowledge and the means with which they pursue this. And what's interesting in Obrigador Hill is that we've got Preserved Porter literally setting up a mode of intimacy with this enslaved man. And this is a, a, an interesting form of, of intimacy. It's necromance also. I mean, it's taboo. There is something distinctly in, in, the, in the purview of ontology. There's a necromantic mm -hmm. type of, uh, of, of, of uh, framing going on here with, if you take also the romantic from the necromantic into yes. consideration, yeah. where he goes in with, herewith begins my dissection of the former body of my former slave, which served him who served me throughout his life and now serves the advance of science. Note well how death softens the human skin, making it almost transparent, so that under my reverent knife, the first cut takes my breath away. It feels like cutting the whole world. It falls open like bridal gossamer. Now, we hear it is an interesting way of rendering this dead man's body feminized. The bridal gossamer, where there's a veil that is being removed to reveal certain mysteries that this scientist is keen on unveiling. And yet he comes back with, and I am humbled by ignorance, humbled by ignorance. These, uh, this couplet, and I've been humbled by ignorance, humbled by ignorance, occurs three times in this particular poem. So let's move on. He goes, standing on a new continent beyond the boundaries of nakedness, I am forever changed by what I see. One begs the question, what is being changed in Preserved Porter indeed? The complex, delicate organs fitted perfectly in their shelter of bones, the striated and smooth muscles, the beautiful integuments, the genius strokes of thumb and knee in profound and awful intimacy. I enter fortune and he enters me. 
So how then do we no. imagine this relationality between this scientist and the enslaved man, the body that is pressed once again into service? How do we then try to find out what has changed in Dr. Preserved Porter? Does he come to see that what he has been doing and what he will do is not necessarily humane, at least to this particular black man in observation or non-observation of his citizen rights? How does this person even try to imagine what this man's wife and children might feel? No, we do not know yet. Here, the reader is left standing on the cusp of expectation. What indeed, what indeed has forever changed? We see that in Cuvier, small things are all his. Do we see Preserved Porter considering what needs to be changed in himself? History has taught us that Preserved Porter does not necessarily exhibit any form of change or reflection no, he, after the dissection, he boils, boils the flesh of fortune's bones. And all that is left are the bones, the bones that he presses once more into service for a further 215 years. Fortune is not buried. Fortune still had to while his way in, uh, while away his time, sorry, in museums, in storerooms, in cellars, mm -hmm. right? He was put into storage. And what happens as well is that, interestingly enough, after Marilyn Nelson actually, you know, sets up this fantastic poem, right, which she conceives of as a requiem, a requiem of leave-taking, right, a laying to rest of the body. We've got spirituals, African-American spirituals that resound as well in a second-line parade, very common in the American South, where both mm. mo the body is mourned, the life that has passed is mourned, but yet again the life is celebrated as well. So we see Nelson setting grief side by side with joy. Is there a mode of laying to rest here? Is there yeah. a mode of leave-taking here? And yet again, we also have Marilyn Nelson also giving um, Dr. Isaiah Maria Barnwell, the former baritone voice of African-American women's a cappella group, Sweet Honey and the Rock, uh, she gives her an assignment. And what happens here, Dr. Isaiah Maria Barnwell, with, uh, Barnwell, I'm sorry, composes an orchestral symphony with seven soloists and a 200-strong black choir, all who perform this entire poetry cycle. And this premiered in Waterbury, Connecticut, on 9th of May, 2009. There was just one performance. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be more performances of, of this particular poetry cycle. So in the end... So, uh, so can, I just, can I just ask you about this here? So the poem... So, okay, the historical case, so to speak, that we only found out about after so many years and the skeleton still not being set to rest becomes an interdisciplinary science project at Mudatuck. Marilyn Nelson writes her, her manumission requiem, her poetical imagination of fortune and um, 
his master. And then this is transformed yet again into music, which is, is it's fascinating to me how all of these artistic reformulations circulate around the body and can never actually resolve the question of the bodily existence of the essential humanity. So art here reproduces the questions and, and echoes things back to us that science never will and never can because science builds on a presumed disembodied objective uh, lens. So that's that's a, a, a huge point for me on the podcast also to, you know, talk about the value of art and the power of art to reproduce things back to us through using science, appropriating it and transforming it into something else. And yet, of course, the case can never be resolved. Whether uh, fortune's bones are laid to rest or not, the evil that has been done, the, the, the exploitation that happened is on science. It's on the white master. It's, it cannot be undone, but it can be worked through. So some kind of grief, some kind of uh, contemporary answer or a tentative suggestion can be offered to those who listen to this requiem or those who read those different voices in one book. So you have Persever Porter's voice, you have Dinah's voice, you have Fortune's own voice. Let's quickly talk about Fortune's voice. That's the chapter, not my bones. Indeed, uh, here I, I have to say as well, uh, you see how we, we, we see an interesting movement of the way Fortune uh, first of all, goes into this introspective sort of um, mm. um, regarding of his own uh, remains, right? Again, yeah. we have the impression this is a voice from beyond the grave, um, a hauntological entity, a ghost, mm. a revenant, if you wish. Uh, Can you quote it for me? You do it so beautifully. <laughs> Can you read out the opening? I, I, I yes, really yes, want to absolutely. hear you do it. It's so cool. I was not this body, I was not these bones. The skeleton was just my temporary home. Elementary molecules converged for a breath, then danced on beyond my individual death. And I am not my body, I am not my body. We are brief incarnations, we are clouds in clothes. We are water respirators, we are how earth knows. I bore light, passed on from an original flame. While it was in my hands, it was called by my name. But I am not my body, I am not my body. Thank you. It's this, it, it is so revolutionary or rebellious that repetition saying i am not my but you can do you can bow my bones you can take it all apart i am not that exactly it doesn't say i am this i'm a spirit i'm a ghost i'm still floating around it does not say what it is it only says i am not my body mm -hmm. so this is also transcending the body in a spiritual mode uh, in a religious mode but also saying you can't you don't have that power you can't do it to me. 
exactly. And at the same time, if you notice in the second stanza, he goes from the first person singular, he moves from I to a we. He's mm -hmm. talking about community. He's mm -hmm. talking about how we as individuals cannot divorce ourselves from the idea of community. This is something that also uh, sort of echoes what uh, Preserved Porter actually realizes when he says, when I enter into fortune and fortune enters me. We have that interesting uh, sort of, of, of recursive uh, uh, reflection on what it means to be community and not necessarily just working on, 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 on modes of individuality, modes of mm -hmm. individual gain. And it's interesting here that, that, that Fortune also talks about the brevity of human life. We are brief incarnations. We are clouds in clothes. Yeah. We are water respirators. We are how Earth knows. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Fortune's ontological take on what knowledge of this Earth is. The fact that all of us, as members of this community, Right, where very often the understanding of humanity and 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 and, and, and humaneness very often it only seems to be accorded to one particular group. Yeah, and and yeah. this has been part of certain epistemological frames, right? When we talk about yeah. universal humanism, mm. all of all of those discourses were generated at a time where slavery was at its peak, where yeah. certain groups were not even accorded the dignity of being named human, yeah? Mm -hmm. where, where he says, we are how Earth knows. Yeah? And this is where knowledge is so much uh, a part, such an intricate element of how we see ourselves and how we relate to each other, how we want to know about each other, how we want to know about the world around ourselves. Right. Mm. But at the same time, there are certain knowledge producers by virtue of their own privileged positions. They seem to have some sort of interpretive sovereignty about what constitutes proper knowledge. And yet yeah. we have a ontological presence of a former slave who died in 1798, who comes back to tell us that we are how Earth knows, and we are accountable for how Earth knows and how mm. we know. Yeah. I have to perhaps also mention at this point, um, Fortune was indeed buried 215 years after he died in September 2013. Okay. Uh, he lay in state at the Connecticut State Capitol Rotunda at Hartford, and the state police escorted him to um, his memorial service at the same church where he was baptized. And the director of the Matatak Museum, Bob Burns, uh, was extremely, you know, forthcoming in providing this mm. information and. Um, uh, he also found out, according to the records, that Fortune was baptized in 1797. The mm. memorial service was held at St. John's Episcop Episcopal Church in Waterbury, where he was baptized, and the burial took place at Riverside Cemetery, uh, a historic cemetery full of prominent Waterbury residents. So um, what's interesting here is that Fortune, the enslaved man who could not have in his lifetime basically imagined being 
buried in the first place. If, yeah. You know, if yeah. we look at this in retrospect, but also mm. buried in his um, former space of life, home interaction, buried mm. amongst prominent residents. Yes. Mm. So 215 years, 215 years after his uh, death and the years of service after that, you know, again, a black body yeah. labor. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the, the, the entire poem cycle basically allows us to reflect critically on um, how certain groups of people, yeah, African-American enslaved people were basically denied their humanity, denied their citizenship rights. It also means that we live in a world that was built on this. So this is spelling out structural racism. It's not like slavery is something that happened 200 years ago or shorter than that. And then it was ended. It's um, we live in a world that is built on that, that is that is lacking a graveyard to those who were not buried or who were uh, used for science uh, or for those who were enslaved. And I mean, this this note to the present, this may be a good transition point also to Patina Judd's work, um, the collection Patient, published in 2014. That's the third text that we want to quickly take a look at. Uh, the title reference already plays out this double meaning. Um, it's a reference, oh, it's called Patient. It's a reference to being patient, <laughs> to bodies that endure things, but it's also a reference to the patient. So the collection is about herself going through uh, gynecological troubles and procedures and uh, she takes up gynecology um, as a, a, a science that comes to us through history and uh, she resurrects the contribution of uh, the women that were examined by one of the inaugurational figures of gynecology and those figures I want to say their names first Joyce Heth Lucy Zimmerman, Betsy Harris, Anarka Westcott. Those are the patients that paved the way for modern gynecology and ultimately allowed Bettina Judd to take control or try to take control over her own black female body in the present moment. So why don't you give us a quick walk, quick walk through Bettina Judd's collection patient. It starts off with in 2006, I had an ordeal with medicine, and then it has various chapters, pathology, use, treason of the body, parody, and to the patient in the end. And we picked two or three little pieces from that. Let me just go to this, to, to page one, where we start with this entire cycle. It's entitled, in 2006, I had an ordeal with medicine. And th this persona is interesting. There is no name attached. But uh, it, during the course of reading this uh, cycle, we realize that uh, this is a black female medical researcher who is basically confronted with this interesting um, idea 
that how does she say it in in one of the stances gynecology was built on the backs of black women anyway she says this on page nine but l let's just go back to this first poem here i must have been found guilty of something i don't feel innocent here lurking with ghosts see it happens like that i start at a thought that is quite benign and end up peccant, debased. I had an ordeal with medicine and was found innocent or guilty. It feels the same because I, lived in a, I live in a haunted house. A house can be a dynasty, a bloodline, a body. There was punishment, like the way the body is murdered by its own weight when lynched. Not that I was wrong, but that verdicts come in a bloodline. In 2006, I had an ordeal with medicine. To recover, I learn why ghosts come to me. The research question is, why am I patient? <laughs> and here, what, what I find highly fascinating here is that it, it, it seems to be a moment of awakening. Yeah, She feels innocent or guilty, what would she be guilty of? What would she be innocent of? This is a researcher. What kind of an ordeal does she have here with me medicine? I believe that ordeal is in the realization of the fact that in the course of her research, she realizes that while she is now currently in 2006 in that privileged position as a black woman medical researcher, the work that she's doing, the privilege of research that she is now engaged with, is standing on the backs of enslaved black women, her ancestral form mothers, if you will, and how they have contributed to the science of gynecology. How did they contribute with their bodies, with their minds, with their personalities? Yeah. How did they contribute to mm. the rudiments of mm. gynecology? Right. She, she ends with that very, very interesting question. Uh, and she, she calls this a research question. Now, research <laughs> questions are very, very important for all of us, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. all of us, for know. all people in the world in academia, yeah, research questions are key, so pipe research up, questions, everyone. Exactly. Research yeah. questions also show us how we have command of certain grammars and vocabularies mm. in certain disciplines in order to engage with the types of, of work that need to be done to produce knowledge. And especially if it comes to gynecology, it, con it concerns women's reproductive health. It concerns women's reproductive organs. Again, this particular uh, uh, field of research is also envisaged as something that produces knowledge to help with that very, very mysterious, if you want to call it that, mysterious exercise of producing children of mm. one's own body with the mm. specific reproductive organs that have been endowed to women. Yeah. So essentially here, we want to ask ourselves, she says that she lives in a haunted house and she talks about a house can be a dynasty, a bloodline and a body. 
using the idea of a bloodline, using the idea of a dynasty, we might want to talk about maternal genealogies here. Mm. We want to talk about a certain epistemological bloodline here. Yeah. Because let's yeah. face it, black women's blood flowed into the uh, charting of this particular science. We might yeah. even say black women's blood was the ink that was used to write these particular treatises on reproductive organs, reproductive sciences, and reproductive health. Mm. Um, so let's talk about this sort of ontologies, right? Yeah. Um, let's talk about who are the people who were historically involved here. Right. And in doing so, in doing so, we then realize as well how the research question that this particular uh, poetic persona of 2006, why am I patient? Again, you have that double entendre. Why am I being patient? Why am I being steadfast and resolve? I'm not rushing towards results. I have taken the time to uh, look at these historical figures. And at the same time, I would also perhaps have to entertain the idea that I, as a black woman, might also have to be a patient, a person being treated for an illness as well. And this is maybe a good point to also point to two things. So one is the question of black women's reproductive health. And this is, I'm super happy to have you here because I know you work on this as well. She, Christine has a, has a conference coming up on this. So there's a, a double standard, to say the least, when it comes to getting treatment, um, you know, getting care under childbirth and these topics. We don't have time to dwell on this, but I recommend that you check this out to our listeners if you're interested. And the second point is, again, how do we engage the logic of onlooker, scientist versus object of science or pa science or patient? And this might be something that lots of people can relate to these days, talking about a pandemic, getting vaccinated, not getting vaccinated. Are we patients or are we are we are we citizens and who gets the right to be vaccinated and when? So uh, Bettina Jett resolves this question uh, by giving agency or empowering the silenced women who helped gynecology on the way. Uh, she has chapters that are called The Researcher Discovers Anarka, Betsy and Lucy, and then Lucy, Betsy and Anarka do some discovering themselves. So Joyce, Joyce Heth, for instance, presents the showman as dentist, or Betsy invents the speculum, or Lucy is, is found on the train. So throughout the poetry collection, she inverts that relationship, that powerful gaze, and gives voice names and empowerment to the women whose bodies served as models. And maybe we can quickly look at Betsy invents the speculum to kind of wrap it up a little bit and come to the present moment. I'd just like to just say a little bit uh, about the one poem that you mentioned earlier, the researcher discovers Anaka, Betsy and Lucy, because I think this has salience to who the other interlocutor in this conversation should be. And that would be uh, Dr. James Marion Sims, who is the gynecologist who does the actual experiments on mm. Lucy, Anaka, and Betsy. And this person is someone who needs to be also 
carefully considered in ways that we have looked at Preserved Porter and Georges Cuvier as well. Um, having said that, um, a little bit of what, for example, Harriet Washington has observed of uh, uh, James Marion Sims' ways of doing knowledge or producing knowledge in her 2006 book, Medical Apartheid. In fact, the very fact that you've got this researcher persona from 2006 and the fact that Harriet Washington's book came out in 2006, in some ways, I, while rereading all these poems and looking at the researcher figure again, I, I was tempted to think that this researcher figure might actually allude to Harriet Washington, who hmm. also talks about uh, interesting similar moments of realization in her own research while she was writing Medical Apartheid. But that's just me. Uh, please don't mm. quote me on that. But there is something that is worth uh, looking at. And I, I, mm. I quote, she says, and this is talking about James M Marion Sims. Public opinion, she says, would tolerate surgical experiments, operations and processes performed upon slaves, which it would execrate if performed upon their masters. Such pointed criticism may help to explain why some physician scientists who spoke candidly of injecting, dosing, or performing revolutionary surgeries on their slave patients in the first half of the 19th century expressed their actions more guardedly in their later writings. For example, Dr. James Marion Sims eventually hid his subject's race and even illustrated reports of experiments on black slave women with illustrations of bourgeois white matrons. <laughs> Journals sometimes dispensed with racial labels, although their articles still offered broad social cues about their subject's ethnicity. Language was often tortured to disguise the racial nature of hazardous experimentations. Unquote. This is ideal because it because it shows us that the poetry at the same time informs us about things that we didn't know. And that's key in unearthing a criticism of the history of science. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's empowering in that it asks us to ask, how did the sample come about? It makes us also a little lay researchers, if need be. While at the same time, you know, giving responsibility back to us and making us become more than just a patient on on a chair. Yeah, and if if we come back to the poem again, that last part, the researcher discovers Anaka, Betsy, and Lucy. She says, "In these three, Sims shapes his speculum, invents his silver sutures, perfects protocol for proper handling of the female pelvis." Mm unanesthetized or addicted to opium, children born, children disappeared, helpless help. And here we see Sims again, and this reminds us of, of Preserved Porter's fascination and his intimacy with, with Fortune's remains, right? I entered Fortune and Fortune enters me, right? And then we have Georges Cuvier's small things, are mine. Mm. And here we have Sims, who's only interested in his speculum, his invention of his silver sutures, and uh, the perfect protocol for the proper handling of the female pelvis. Again, the female body is being fragmented, right? That pelvis, the female pelvic region, is the site, is the site where knowledge is produced and found mm. and mm. narrated, right? Or and maybe even the site where um, Preserve Porter in yeah. Nelson's poem imagines himself as the great discoverer. Absolutely. I mean, remember that quote about 
I stand on the continent. Absolutely. And I mean, that, that crumbles 250 years of, or 500 years of settler colonialism into and onto the woman's body. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Where I mean, you're, the you're... male dis white discoverer comes and takes it and does as he pleases with it. Absolutely. And then, of course, the, 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 the products of the reproductive system children born children disappeared right yeah okay how uh, how did they figure in to this relationality obviously sims wasn't necessarily interested in black children being born mm. okay we have several poems in this particular cycle where you have uh, lucy and anaka and joyce speaking to their children who are either unborn or born dead or who have passed on afterwards. They, in, in some cases, they literally beg their children's forgiveness mm -hmm. for what they have had to endure. And which then brings me back to the question of labor, of work, black women's work. This part of, um, this last part, helpless help. We have the, 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 the idea of the help, for example, the domestic enslaved woman who now has to use a different mode of labor unlike Dinah who has to dust around fortune's bones we have people like Anaka Lucy and Betsy having to do perform a different kind of labor and mm. the poem that you addressed uh, uh, that we wanted to talk about here Betsy invents the speculum Right, and th this is a key moment in J. Marion Sims's life. I mean, we yeah. also have an interesting excerpt from his "The Story of My Life," J. Marion Sims, where he, well, he's he's basically interested in recording all these highlights, the greatest hits of his own lifetime of mm. knowledge production. <laughs> the and greatest hits. <laughs> Absolutely. Introducing the bent handle of the spoon, I saw everything as no man have ever seen before. Mm. I mean, seriously. The discovery. Um, I love the discovery. Again, it's all again, out there. It's exactly. like outer space. Absolutely. It's, he, he or inner space. Yeah. Preserved porter standing mm. on the edge of the continent about mm -hmm. to explore, about to discover. And what's interesting here as well, he's got the bent handle of a spoon. A bent mm. handle of the spoon that he saw everything as no man had seen before. Again, we've got the, uh, the white male gaze, the patriarchal gaze, the knowledge producing gaze, right? Where mm. he has interpretive sovereignty. And what's interesting here with the idea of a spoon which he probably improvised to produce that initial uh, uh, model of a speculum and yet a spoon is an instrument to ingest food we yes. have a rather ghoulish haunting ghostly type of image here where we have the scientist who is ready to consume the black female body mm. in mm. order to find the knowledge mm. he so desires and craves and yet we have Betsy's voice coming back here. We have, I have bent in other ways to open the body to make space. More pliable than pewter, my skin may be less giving. Great discoveries are made on cushioned lessons and hard falls. Sims invents the speculum. I invent the wincing, the if you must of it, the looking away, the here of discovery. We've got the helpless help. Betsy literally 
speaking of her helplessness and how she does the work while Sims uses that spoon, that improvised speculum, to actually mm. invent the speculum, he mm. has to use Betsy's body. She's not necessarily a passive object here. What is interesting here is that she bends herself in ways to open her body to fashion that speculum to its optimum shape yeah. so that Sims can basically claim his credit for mm. fashioning um, an examining instrument to discover, explore the intricacies and the mysteries of the black female body. I'd like to end on this powerful image of the scientist, the instrument and the body forming a still life, an atrocious still life, maybe an awful one that might traumatize people but still an important artistic still life that kind of asks us, implores us to ask these questions and to, to tackle these texts and um, to go back to the notion of, of, of what, what, what history do we stand on and, and what's the future that we want to cast around this. And um, maybe we can close with some little reference. <laughs> So this is as as we're speaking. This is the day that we're recording this. Uh, it's not going to air be AR today because it's not live. But the day that we're recording this is uh, International Women's Day and has and it has so many layers, so many meanings. Uh, in Germany, it has been relabeled Internationaler Frauenkampftag to um, call on German white feminist voices to start thinking more intersectionally and to consider fighting not only for white feminist privileges uh, or equalities, but for all people of colors as well. And um, the structural racism as a concept is, is only starting to be explored. And there's so much backlash that we are uh, seeing that I've been seeing um, in German media these weeks and months. And so trying to silence and to attack black voices is a history, has a history, as our episode today has shown. And it's an important history. And so can I just add something here? I, I, I just want to come back to, to what Harriet Washington said about how language is often tortured to disguise the, the racial nature of hazardous experimentation. And I'd like to just uh, ask us to also think about how language is used in the way uh, we, we construct knowledge narratives as well. And here I would like to just ask us to think about what June Jordan says about the political uses of poetry and how poetry can be used as sites of critical thinking, of epistemological engagement, and the ways that we, we take fresh looks at history in order to look at what has been silenced, right? And, mm. and June Jordan says, poetry names what has been silenced and allows us to understand and articulate our connections to one another and to the world we inhabit. I think this is something that is, is also very, very pertinent to all the poetry cycles that we looked at this evening. Mm. And I think this is where, as well, we look at how uh, science, the hard sciences, as well as how the arts can actually provide us with very critical epistemological frames to look at how, you know, social injustice in our times 
today is being framed and what kinds of voices are, sp are speaking and who is being heard and who is being listened to. Yes. So then we can end on poetry as a site of critical thinking and literature as a nudging point to make people keep reading and keep thinking and keep engaging. Absolutely. Thank you, Christine, for a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for coming. Um, this has been a long episode, but it poetry needs this kind of space. And I'd like to encourage our readers to take a look at the three poetry collections or at the, the poets that we've examined, Elizabeth Alexander's The Venus Hottentot, Bettina Judd's Patient, and Marilyn Nelson's Fortune's Bones. Keep reading. Stay happy and healthy, everyone. Thank you for Christine and have a great evening. Same here. It was a pleasure indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Thank Stay you. safe. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.